I decided uh, not to preach today. So you've had plenty of that, right? So I'm going to teach. What's the difference? Well, the camera person doesn't get whiplash chasing me around the platform. I don't get any complaints about that. And uh, Jesus, Jesus often taught. And I miss teaching sometimes. So we're going to turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to do a little session here on Luke chapter 10, verse 38 to 42. Let's see if we can't learn something together. And the title of this is, uh, Only One Thing is Necessary, which actually is in this passage if you look at different translations. But this begs the question. Here's what I want you to do. I want to encourage you to pick a pencil or a pen or use your cell phone, whatever you got to do. If something comes up in this next short time here, that's noteworthy for you, I want you to write it down because I'm only asking the question for your best interest and mine as well. The title is Only One Thing is Necessary. That begs this thought. It's thought-provoking, isn't it? How much of what you are preoccupied in your life is necessary? How much of what you pray for is an actual need versus a want? Are necessary things in your life getting neglected? Which may just be the person sitting to your right or left. What's necessary and is necessary getting cheated? That's the first thing I'd ask you. Here's a word that I am really reluctant to use in our culture, and that is the word sacrifice. What is it that needs to be sent packing in our life? What has become a priority that no longer really needs to be? I don't really know experientially what the definition of sacrifice is. I don't know that I really sacrifice anything. Not, not as other people sacrifice stuff in different parts of the world. I don't really get that one. And I'm tainted in that way by the word sacrifice. But maybe I need to embrace it. What do I need to sacrifice? What's necessary here? and what's not. All right, here's another one. How much worry and anxiety and fretting is taking place over things that aren't even necessary? And what are you doing on a daily basis that really is necessary at this season of your life? And if it's not, what is it costing elsewhere in your life? There's a price for it. Only one thing is necessary. All right, let's look at Luke chapter 10, verse 38, 42. There's a little community outside of uh, Jerusalem called Bethany. Archaeologists have found a graveyard there, and they found the graveyard of this actual family we're going to look at. The father's name was Simon. There's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They found their graveyard. Yes, Lazarus was buried a second time. You knew he would be. Um, but this is an actual family that lived outside of um, Jerusalem that Jesus had uh, not only befriended, he had come to love them deeply. Uh, quite deeply. And uh, let's read the passage, then we'll break it down. As Jesus and his disciples, verse 38, were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came and hit him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. 
or indeed only one. Some translations say only one thing is necessary, Martha. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. I don't, we don't have all the details, but it's safe to say, I mean, Jesus pretty much crashed in her. He didn't call ahead, we know that. Didn't text. He's descending upon their home. They know each other, obviously. With about 12 dudes himself, maybe some other people. There's about 18 people in the living room. And Martha didn't have a chance to clean the toilets. We have people over at our house. It's a two-day affair, getting ready. He's spontaneously, Jesus is just dropping in. And Martha's freaking. Let's have a fairly large house. That's a fairly large group. She's having to fix a fairly large meal. And I know that this probably happened based on what we see about this interaction between Jesus and this family because they knew each other well and they could be themselves around one another. You know, I think we, all of us need that. I think we need people in our life outside our immediate circle of influence, our, our immediate people in our household. We need people that we can be with and when we're with those people, we can be ourselves. We need people in our life that we can drop in on and they can drop in on us, where we know them and we're known by them. Believe me, people in ministry need vocational ministry. We're all in ministry. People in vocational ministry need safe houses to go to where we can be ourselves. And Jesus had this one. It was a respite for him outside of the um, urban area of Jerusalem. It was a place to go and rest and eat and be himself and relax. This was a place to chillax. And he knew it, and they knew it. But Martha, Martha knew it too, but her reaction to his dropping in was different than others. Do you have relationships in your life with people of faith where you can truly be transparent and be yourself and let your guard down? You know, when I came to faith in Christ decades ago, I had relationships with a close-knit group of people, and they saw the best in me, and they'd seen the worst in me. They saw the worst in me, and I didn't even remember what it was they saw, but they saw the worst in me. And they still liked me. I don't want to say loved me. I don't know what it was, but I had that in the world. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you, do you have a person of faith that you can fellowship with, that you talk about matters of faith and integrity and honesty? When you talk about things like relationships and love, do you have that person in your life? Before we go any further, this is necessary. You are God called, nor am I, nor am I called to cultivate an environment whereby you and I work out our faith on our own apart from one another. I don't care who you are, you need someone else of faith in your life to whom you can drop in on, talk about anything with. And that may take some cultivating, but it is necessary. Said another way, if we're making something else more necessary than that, 
Something needs to go. We need that. We need that as men. We need that as women. We need it as husbands. We need it as wives. We need that kind of relationship, and Jesus had it with the entire family. So he drops in on him. There he is. And she had a sister called Mary who was sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his word. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. To sit at someone's feet and listen to their teaching in this first century context of Palestine was not allowed by women. Jesus treated women and interacted with them different than everyone else. By her sitting there at his feet, if you read the real intention here, she was so attentive, so hanging on his every word, she was practically glued to what he was saying. And she was receiving from him teaching that the Pharisees, the Judaism wouldn't allow, but he did. She sat at his feet in the living room, and it just wasn't that she wasn't helping with the meal, it was that she was sitting at his feet. There were both things going on there. Make no mistake about it. Jesus wanted desperately for her to hear what he had to say, and she was attentive and, and, and very clear that she belonged there, she felt at home at his feet, and she humbled herself. People that sat at other, Paul sat at Gamaliel's feet, the best, biggest Jewish, Jewish teacher in the land, he sat at his feet. If you could get the apostle Paul, then Saul, who was a spiritual terrorist, to sit at someone's feet, that's serious. That takes humility, it takes pliability, it takes openness, but she now was doing that at his feet in the living room. Not only does he pop in, but there's something semi-scandalous going on in here that this woman, a first century woman, would be sitting at his feet. Wow. Now, something's going on in the kitchen. <laughs> and I can only imagine asking you what it sounds like and what it, what's going on in there. But there's a fairly big meal being prepared. And uh, Martha, let's be honest, can be a little bossy. She gets a little bossy with Jesus in a few minutes. She, it's her household, notice it says that in the opening. Jesus came to her house. She calls the shots. She's the one who's supposed to tell everybody what to do before visitors come. She didn't get a chance to tell anybody. She's calling the shots on how clean everything's supposed to be, how this is supposed to be in the refrigerator, how this has to happen at a certain time, how this has to be cooked a certain way. She's full on. Okay, let's shroud it real politely in the gift of hospitality, but something ain't right here. Especially when the, you start to bang the pots a little louder than maybe you should. Maybe someone in the living room would hear that maybe she's in there all alone cooking dinner for about 18 people. You know, a little something for the effort. While Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, like some sort of like uh, Old Testament judge of some kind. Yeah, it's a problem. And uh, I can see her slinging the hash back there. There's something about meals in the Bible that are incredibly important, but this particular one, the heart is there, but it's not necessary. Something's not necessary about this because it ends in a conflict. So they're, they're waxing eloquently about the spirit and the logos and the word and their teaching and everybody's amening in the living room and she comes out and starts chewing Jesus out. Something between the kitchen and the living room is wrong. Now her intent, her intent 
is noble. She wants to cook and prepare a beautiful meal really to honor her guest uh, so that they can have fellowship together. But the whole time that she's doing it, it's, it's problematic because things are emotionally escalating with this woman to the point where she's gonna come out and let them have it. Now, what is that? Jesus is not against eating. In fact, he's very pro-eating. Pro-feast, pro-dinner, pro-table fellowship, pro-communion, pro-everything. Pro-feeding 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. He's big on it. He knows all of that stuff is important. But this cooking of this meal, I don't know, just in my own lifetime, I've come to understand this, maybe you have too. If you are, if you have people in your house that watch the Food Network and they have the remote and you have to watch the Food Network, it's turned into some sort of militaristic uh, authoritarian regime where a chef now is like a, He's like he's part of the Joint Chiefs. You, you, you can make shots. You can throw people out of the kitchen. You can humiliate them. You can embarrass them. You can, you can ruin their lives. You can judge them, condemn them. I don't know what all this kitchen thing is, but it's become a billion-dollar industry. Well, she's got all of that going on in the kitchen. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Um, she decided to cook the meal. Nobody, I don't see any evidence of anybody asking her to cook a meal. She decided when the meal would be cooked. She decided when the meal would be served. She didn't let anybody in on it. Now, her timetable isn't matching up with Jesus' timetable. And it certainly isn't matching up with Mary's conduct. So she's distracted. They're having a revival in the living room. She's in the flesh in there in the kitchen. She's getting angry. Flowers going everywhere, smoke's filling the house. They're cooking by wood. It's not pretty. It's not pretty when you're cooking a meal that you really want to, to really impress somebody when it doesn't work out. Very bad. There's a lot of effort, a lot of expense, a lot of time that goes involved in making a meal. It doesn't work out. It's not working out. If it's a problem, or if other people are a problem, it ruins the whole environment, the whole atmosphere of the meal. And she's distracted. And she came up to him. Notice what she says. She comes up to him and she says, Lord, do you not care? <laughs> what, that's like saying, does Jesus not care? Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. You know she's in the wrong on some level because her problem is with Mary, but she's taking it out on Jesus. I don't know what it is about Americans. We're number one in so many different areas of the world, but resolving conflict we're about 197 out of 199 countries. Our culture does not like to resolve conflict between two people. We are so, so bad at it. She won't even speak to her own sister. She'll only speak to Jesus, as though he's supposed to be telling her sister what to do. As he's at fault here, 
She's distracted. And his answer, he says, tell her to help me. Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. What are you bothered about? I mean, it's Sunday morning. There's not a lot going on today. I happen to be here. Not a lot of distraction. It's quiet. A chance to think. What are you bothered about? Because this kitchen that she's in is not a lot different than living in this world. In fact, my guess is she has the news on in the kitchen. What are you bothered about? What are you worried about? Now ask yourself this question. Is it necessary? You know, if she would have sat down and said, Lord, what, what, I'm so glad you came. Would have appreciated a call, but here you are. You are the Lord of the universe. What would you like to do? Maybe he would have said, what do you think about uh, some olives, some pita, some hummus? We'll spend some time in the living room. And then you join us. It's all just fellowship together. And then we'll have a meal after that. And we can wait. You know, the thing is, another thing about our culture, we eat fast, right? How many of you have been to Europe where they don't even turn tables over once or twice a whole evening in a restaurant? You eat dinner at 9 o'clock. They're not trying to... To, to turn everything over and make as much money as possible. They want you to enjoy the experience. They want you to speak with one another. They want you to laugh together. They want you to be merry. They want you to enjoy the fellowship and friendship. It seems as though in our culture we do so much so fast. We don't even think about what we're doing. Let's just go ahead and get it done. Let's start on it. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. Well, what, what is it you're trying to get done? And then ask yourself this question, is it necessary? Is it necessary? Because Jesus says only one thing is necessary here, Martha. If you looked at it from uh, almost like a, from a heavenly perspective, from a heavenly drone perspective, the center of the universe at that moment is Martha's living room. That's where the center of the universe is. That's where the most important things that are happening on the face of the earth are happening, and that's where Jesus is in the living room talking to those people, these very people that he's gonna use to change the world. And she's not in the room. Her intentions are incredible. Her hospitality is marvelous, but her timing is way off. You know, there's nothing like it. Like, if you ever go to the beach on vacation, and you go out to, and you walk on the beach, or you lay in the sun, you get all sandy, and you get all hot, you get a little bit of a tan, and you're feeling a little gross, it's getting to be late in the afternoon, and you say, well, let's go in, let's get a shower, and we'll get ready to go to dinner. In your mind, you're saying, we're gonna go out and get a nice meal, we're gonna get some fresh fish, we're gonna get some salmon, we're gonna do whatever we want. But it's that shower at the beach. I don't know what it is about the shower at the beach. It transforms you into a whole other person. The day starts... Day starts over, something new is about to happen, something really cool, you're gonna have a really cool meal. And you're gonna be clean, and you're not gonna feel gross, and you're gonna sit with people and you're gonna enjoy the whole experience. 
That really, right there, now this isn't the beach, I get it, but that right there is really how I would feel about if I had a small group at my house at night. You go to work, you do what you gotta do, you're, you're, you're doing what you gotta do, you go home and you realize, all right, we got small group tonight. I'm gonna go take a shower, I'm gonna change gears emotionally, and I'm gonna go sit down with these people in our house that know me and I know them, we're friends, we can talk about anything, and we're gonna go do life together, and we're gonna look at this book. That's like, that's like going to dinner for me at the beach. That, that is like, wow, that is a good evening. To sit there like that. I remember when I was first a believer, I used to go to these Bible studies and I would sit there, like I was like a sponge. <laughs> I'd suck up everything that was said. And I was like, wow, how did I go 25 years without doing this? I, I don't even understand. What, what was I doing that was so necessary to cheat me out of this experience of sitting down with people that I love and going through this together? Because it was life-changing to me. First time I go to a Bible study, we sit down and talk about something, something I'd never heard of before. I didn't know who Martha was. I didn't know who Mary was. I didn't even know what a parable was. I didn't even have a Bible. And they start talking about that, and I'd, I'd, I'd literally get in my car and I'd drive home, and I just, I had such a euphoric sense of joy that I was doing something that was necessary for the, one of the first times of my life. And almost everything that I had done to that point in time was so unnecessary. I didn't, need to, I didn't need to be doing that, not to be happy, not to be anything. I didn't need to be doing that. I mean, there are literally people in this room who are still building your career, and you, it's not even necessary. We're, we're way past necessary. We're in, we're in luxury. Uh, we're in, we're in uh, desire, and there's, there's a lot to be said for that. But the question is, and Martha really begs the question, what is it that is necessary that you're not doing to do this thing that you deem to be necessary? Because Martha deemed this meal to be necessary, and it wasn't. It was a wonderful gesture, but it was off-center of the universe. What, have you, what are you doing the next 10 or 15, 20 years of your life that's not even really necessary at the expense of that which is, there's only really one thing necessary. Him, your family, your marriage. That's really all there is. I'm sorry. Others, your neighbors. That's really all there is. We've made it to be so much more than that, but that's... We are the richest people on the face of the earth. What percentage of the people on this globe make less a year than we make in a week? What is necessary? What is needed? What is wanted? I was charged with leading a 60 plus million dollar building campaign one time at a church in Atlanta. It's a lot of money. And I was told that our core value was excellence but not extravagance. How many times did I have to lead a meeting where I said, listen, we're backing off of that because that's extravagance. We want excellence but not extravagance. What in your life is extravagant that's not necessary, that's keeping you from the one thing that is, excuse me, the one person who is. These are words you don't want to hear, but words you were so glad you did when you actually apply them in your life. What do I do? 
that's unnecessary. The last thing I want to do is get on some legalistic trip where Christianity because shoulda, woulda, coulda, have to do this, you're condemned if you don't, uh, feel guilty. Forget all of that. Relationally speaking, Martha is taking action for a relationship, not from a relationship. She's taking action to solidify a relationship with Christ, to better a relationship, and she's wasting her time. He'll love the meal, he'll love her for making it, but it will have little to no impact on her relationship with him. He doesn't have a friendship with us because of our level of performance. He doesn't love us because of our level of excellence or performance in the kitchen. He loves us because he is love. And you and I are unlovable. So let's figure that out. She's taking an action for a relationship, not from it. By the way, as long as we're on the subject of meals. Do you see, and I have friends, and I would tell this to their face if they weren't here today. Some go to mass every day. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Unless the going to the mass is more important than the friendship. When the meal becomes more important than the one who said to eat it, we've missed it. We've missed necessity, and we've created a new one, which isn't in here. That, my friend, is religiosity. It will get us nowhere fast. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. When you have a love relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and you understand that he loves you and you love him, that you can go to his house or he can come to yours unannounced anytime and you can be yourself with him and him with you, when there's a, an exchange of honesty and uh, desire and passion and respect when you can sit at his feet, even though you're in your recliner, and you can learn from this book in the morning, and that dew of the Spirit begins to just, the condensation of that begins to start your day, that's necessary. That's necessary. But when you have that love relationship with Christ, I'm not talking about going to a church and listening to people sing about and talk about him. I'm talking about you in your heart speaking with him, him with you, you learning from him, him teaching you, him encouraging you, him lifting you up, him taking you out of the depths of depression, him providing for you when you didn't have a way, him providing a way where there seemed to be no way, him interacting with you in everyday life because he's rose from the dead and he's still alive and not dead. Many people under the banner of Christianity, if they really thought about it, are worshiping a God who's dead. At least their behavior is dictating as much. There's not a reliance upon, there's not a counting on, there's not a fellowship with, there's not the breaking of bread with a God who's still alive, who ever liveth to make intercession for us. Because where his love is, 
There is no fear. And there is no anxiety. Martha is afraid, and she's not going to get the credit, and she's anxious, and she's fretting. Perfect love casts out fear. If you're riddled with anxiety, which is nothing more than living in the future before it ever gets here, your issue is that your heart wasn't guarded. You don't have a peace that transcends all understanding, and you're anxious because you don't understand that the most necessary thing in your life is the love of Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. 150 bucks an hour, you can minimize it and dilute it, but you can't eradicate it. What we need is a love for, shared with Christ that comes from him. And he needs to take residence in our heart. She's off, she's in the flesh. Greatest of intentions, but she's off in the flesh. She's off in the weeds. She can't get back. They're about, they're about to have a revival in the living room and in the kitchen. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Things are really heating up. One thing, Mary, she says, is necessary. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We can do things for Christ, or we can receive life from Christ. She's doing something for Christ. Mary's receiving life from Christ. And Mary chose the more excellent way. This is how it works. They both look so right. They both, both look beautiful and shiny. They both look holy and righteous. But one's unnecessary, and one is deeply necessary. Where does this leave us? Your wife, my friend, is the second most important relationship in your life. Your Lord is your first. Your husband is your second most important relationship in your life. The Lord is first. More important than your children. To neglect the necessities of the first relationship will compromise the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth. The reason they're in the living room is because the living room is where you get life. Are you spending time in the living room with this risen Christ? And what is more necessary than that? Are you going at that relationship on your own apart from others for whom you can be yourself and still be loved and accepted? I hate to disappoint you if this is your mindset, but God really doesn't want you to be a servant. He wants you to be his friend. Out of that friendship will come service. A servant, apart from friendship, is more of a hireling. Getting paid by the hour to do a job and miss the impartation of life. 
a little bit of a checkup this morning. What in our life is needed, what is wanted, what is luxury, and what is necessary? At the center of this meal is Christ. It makes it different than other meals because he is the meal. Let's make no mistake about it. You can't manufacture this meal. It comes by the one who is our greatest necessity, he who forgives us of our sin. We have no greater need than that. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except through him, the Son. Now that's a meal. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. No one is denying that we have the best of intentions to glorify him with our lives. But everyone, from time to time, needs to fine-tune what it is we are doing and the motivation behind it. And that's where Martha missed it. She was doing something really cool, but her motivation was a bit off. Her timing was definitely off. If you're exhausted, Emotionally, mentally, physically. Look at Mary for a moment. Sit down at the feet of Jesus. So many incredible things happen at the feet of Jesus. People weep on his feet. People anoint his feet. People are commissioned to take care of his mother at his feet. He knew this. That's why on this very night he washed their feet. We have not only a need for the meal, we have a need to be at his feet. In humility, teachability. Like I said when we started the morning, we have a need to worship him. If you neglect that need, guess what? You'll worship something else. And I can assure you that is unnecessary. As the communicants come forward, let's prepare for he as the meal, the broken body of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of the lamb. pray in your presence is the fullness of joy you are love and love cast out all fear who of us by worrying can add a single hour to our life you know when a sparrow falls to the ground numbered the very hairs of our head. If we are neglecting you, 
for something we define as more important. Forgive us by this blood. We failed to sit at your feet. Thank you in advance for welcoming us back. We wish to be glued to your every word as you impart to us life in our very own living room. We'll leave here cleansed of all unrighteousness because not just the meal, what you did on our behalf, that the meal helps us to remember cross and Calvary. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you for that, Son. And we thank you for that, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you would, in a moment, come to the corresponding station. Take the wafer, the broken body of Christ, and dip it in the cup. Listen to what I'm about to say. Don't miss the importance of what I'm about to say. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. 